Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week, we looked at the threats a mine proposed in Alaska poses to Katmai and Lake Clark National Parks. And we wrote about concerns for national parks created by the Trump administration's rollback of some clean water regulations and told you about 35 acres added to Grand Teton National Park. You can read those and other stories about parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. This week's show is our 50th, a number that looks so distant a year ago. While we had hoped to bring you a discussion of putting more bison on federal lands in the West this week, we'll have to postpone that for at least a week. Instead, we're going to be talking about a Jurassic period carnivore dubbed AJ, a new species of Allosaurus found in Dinosaur National Monument in Utah. And we'll take you on a short Revolutionary War history tour of Saratoga National Historical Park in New York State. Straddling the Utah-Colorado border, the landscape holding Dinosaur National Monument came to the world's attention in 1909 when Earl Douglas, a paleontologist at the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, found eight dinosaur tailbones protruding from a sandstone hill. That was the first modern paleontological discovery at Dinosaur National Monument, which was designated as a national monument in 1915. Today, people come to Dinosaur to marvel at the Quarry Exhibit Hall, where you can gaze at a rock wall of approximately 1,500 fossilized dinosaur bones. Or you can take a world-class rafting trip down the Yampa or Green Rivers that course through the monument. What many visitors might not know is that all the while, paleontologists are continuing to search the landscape for new specimens. One of those new specimens of a new species of Allosaurus just recently was put on display at the Natural History Museum of Utah in Salt Lake City. To discuss this find, we're joined today by Mark Lowen, a research associate at the Natural History Museum of Utah and associate professor in the Department of Geology and Geophysics at the University of Utah. Welcome to The Traveler, Mark. My pleasure to be here. Now, I guess this specimen was actually discovered roughly three decades ago. Is that right? Yeah. What's really interesting is this this specimen has been known about for a long time. Uh-huh. It was first found in 1990. Um, we didn't actually find the skull that went to the nearly complete articulated skeleton until 1996. And then it's taken the next few decades for us to do the research to really decide whether this was something significant and new and how it compared to all the other meat-eating dinosaurs that are found throughout the world. Now, I guess also one of the interesting things was how the fossil was recovered from the sandstone. Wasn't it blasted out? So one of the things that we do when we have a skeleton that's all articulated or all the bones are still sticking together, we like to keep those bones together in that way so we can preserve the context and how they fit together. So this was a very large block. In fact, it was the largest dinosaur block of bones that had ever been taken out in the state of Utah up to that point. So in order to remove the rock on the cliff face, 
another problem we ran into was the rocks that the dinosaur were actually found in were tilted up on an angle. So a lot of the rocks above it had to be removed before we could actually surround the actual skeleton with plaster and burlap to prepare it for travel. So some of that rock had to be dynamited out. And the end result was a block of dinosaur that was so heavy it needed to be lifted by a giant helicopter. Was it roughly 26 feet long? Is that correct? That's about how long the animal would have been. Uh Um, But when dinosaurs die, as they're starting to decompose, sometimes they curl up. So this dinosaur is kind of curled up into a ball that's only about 12 feet long. So you you surmise that it was a natural death, if you will? It died somehow. Uh, We don't actually know why it died, but um, we can reconstruct some of the things that happened between when it actually died and when it was completely covered by the fine gravel of the river system that it was found within. Um, The head came off of the body. Uh, Part of the tail washed away. So you would have had a scenario in which some of the bones were held together with soft tissue, skin, muscle, and bone, um, and ligaments and things like that. And then parts of it were starting to come apart. We're not really seeing any evidence of scavenging on the skeleton, but a few of the bones are missing, which probably got washed away. Yeah. What what do you think the landscape looked like when uh, this animal was prowling the earth? So this animal lived in the Morrison Formation in the central part of North America. And it's an area that we associate with floodplains, forests of conifer and ericaria-type trees. There are ginkgos, there are cycads, ferns, things like that. Not a flowering plant, not a single blade of grass. But along the rivers, you would have had this lush vegetation setting up a place for lots of different animals to live. At the same time, where this particular specimen is found, it seems to be an area in which it's semi-arid. We have seasonal droughts. Um, In fact, the famous quarry wall um, at Dinosaur National Monument represents a flash flood after a time of drought. This dinosaur was found in rocks that are a little bit older and represent an even more arid time in which braided streams would have been flowing through the, through the landscape. Maybe the uplands were a little bit drier than the wetter sides of the rivers. And sometimes the rivers were perennial, meaning they didn't flow all year long. Now, as I, I understand, the, the skull was actually found because it had turned radioactive over the years. Is that right? One of the problems with the excavation is there was no skull evidence along with the skeleton. So we had everything from the very end of the neck that connects to the skull to the very tip of the tail, missing just a few tailbones in the middle of the tail and the skull. So they dug back into the hill, still no skull. But one of the things about a lot of the bones in the Morrison Formation in Utah and other places throughout the West is that the bones have collected radioactive uranium over time. As the fossilization process progresses, some of these radioactive elements that are just in the system are washing in and collecting inside the bones. 
So you can actually run um, a radiation scintillometer across Jurassic bones, and often you'll get a peak. So we had a uh, radiology technician at the University of Utah got the bright idea that he would make a portable radiation detector on wheels, and they would use it to search the surrounding areas to look for a hot zone that might be radioactive. Sure enough, it shows up as being radioactive in this one certain place, and about four or five feet away from the skeleton, they actually found most of the skull missing just the right side of the face. Hmm. Were there any other um, fossils that you found that way? No, to my knowledge, that's the only fossil we've ever found uh, because it was radioactive. So, I mean, one of the advantages here is we knew that the, the bones in the skeleton were radioactive. So, you know, the idea was the skull must be close. All the rest of the bones are so well-preserved and so well-articulated um, together that almost certainly the rest of the skull must be there somewhere. But at the same time, we still haven't found the right side of the face. Now, Utah, of course, is is a hotbed, um, no pun intended, for um, fossilized dinosaur remains. And um, a little bit to the south and central Utah, of course, you've got the, the Cleveland Lloyd uh, Dinosaur Quarry. Um, which now I believe is a, a Bureau of Land Management National Monument. There is an amazing collection of fossilized dinosaurs found there, too, uh, as I recall. And um, I don't know if they decided exactly what, whether it was a kill site or whether all the, the remains were washed down downriver um, to that site. Do you know? Yeah, well, lots of people have lots of different opinions on it. Um, I've studied the site extensively. And I'm, I'm convinced that that site represents a flood assemblage. Um, I grew up in the Midwest, and I saw the giant floods of 1993 on the Missouri River. And I saw eddies of cows floating out in the cornfields in circles. A similar situation probably is what I would invoke for the Cleveland Lloyd Dinosaur Quarry, in which... The dinosaurs are killed, they drowned in the thousand-year flood or whatever. Then they collect together as floating bags of rotten flesh. And then as they come apart, the gases inside the skeletons explode. They start to rain down bones into the mud. And that's what, to me, explains what's going on at the site. One of the biggest problems we've had with the site over time is there's way too many of a certain species of uh, predatory dinosaur called Allosaurus fragilis. Mm -hmm. That's our state fossil. It's the most common meat-eating dinosaur in the Jurassic of Utah. And 70% of the bones in this deposit belong to that dinosaur. That doesn't represent a natural population. If you go to the Serengeti or the Maasai Mara in Africa today, you're not going to see giant herds of lions and then just a few wildebeest and giraffes around them. You're going to see giant herds of giraffes, elephants, wildebeest, and just a few lions together in a pride. It takes way more herbivorous animals to feed a few carnivorous animals than you would imagine. Generally, in a normal ecosystem today, we have... Three to five percent of the animals are, are predatory. So having seventy percent predators in one quarry, you have to explain why you got all these animals here. So classically, people have talked about 
La Brea Tar Pits. La Brea Tar Pits are a place where saber-toothed cats and dire wolves all got trapped in the oily tar as they were coming to prey upon big elephants that got stuck in the mud and things like that. By far, that site is dominated by predators. So that's been used. Um, it's been evoked as an answer to the Cleveland Lloyd quarry. But there's lots of problems with that. We don't have enough predation in the quarry. There's seven or eight bones out of 20,000 that have um, bite marks on them. Um, there's not enough trampling going on within the quarry. You have thin, pristine neck bones that shouldn't survive in a situation like that. So to me, a scenario in which you have a flood killing a bunch of animals and then the hydraulics of how these bags of dinosaur flesh bone balloons are floating down a river can actually explain how you collected so many allosaurus because allosaurus has a lot of pneumaticity in its skeleton and in its body and maybe it had a certain kind of leather on it. We've ha found a few examples of the leather skin from allosaurus specimens over time. So maybe it had more to do with how the animal is actually put together, how buoyant it is, and how strong its skin was to actually collect those dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. We're talking today with Mark Lowen, a research associate at the Natural History Museum of Utah, about a new species of allosaurus that was recently discovered in Utah. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Now, Mark, you were the co-lead author of the study that determined this to be a new species of Allosaurus. As I understand, there are at least... Uh, two species of Allosaurus in North America, and this one is much, much older than the other. Is that right? It's not much, much older. Um, it actually just preceded it. So over time, this new species that we're naming was replaced by the much better known Allosaurus progillus. 
And through all of our research, we've looked at dinosaur bones all over the world belonging to Allosaurus. Virtually every specimen that's known to exist um, has been looked at by either Dan or myself. And we can confirm that there are only two species living in North America. The first one, Allosaurus Jim Madsenai, is later replaced by the second one, Allosaurus fragilis. And what differentiates the two? The major differences are in the architecture of the skull. So the earlier animal, Allosaurus Jim Madsenai, is actually much lighter in its build. It's not quite as strong as the resultant Allosaurus fragilis that follows it. Um, so some of the things in the back of the skull would have provided a lot more strength for feeding. Uh, literally, people have done studies to look at how much bite force the animal had and how resistant to breakage the skull was from torsional stresses and things like that that you would associate it with, with feeding. So I think over time, the skull gets a little bit stronger, and that animal is able to outcompete uh, the original animal and eventually takes over. At the same time, within its ecosystem, both Allosaurus geomancini and Allosaurus fragilis are the dominant predator. They represent the lineage of theropod dinosaurs that's going to continue on into the Cretaceous, and until it goes extinct, Allosaurus and their descendants are the dominant predators in every ecosystem in which they exist. It's only with their extinction later in about 90 million years to 100 million years ago that the Tyrannosaurs are able to take over. Living alongside Allosaurus fragilis and Allosaurus gymnasini, there's a Tyrannosaur, but it's a bit player. It's a small animal, um, less than a third of the size of Allosaurus, and it's very uncommon. So Tyrannosaurs are out there. They're just not able to make their title claim to the throne of being the, the top predator in the ecosystem until Allosaurus goes extinct. Yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned the differences in the skull, and uh, that indicated, I believe, that this species had a different feeding behavior than uh, Allosaurus fragilis? They probably ate in a similar way, but Allosaurus fragilis has a stronger skull that would have been able to, if you're going to go attack something, bite it with your head, and shake it to death, Allosaurus fragilis has a better capability of doing that than Allosaurus gymnasinite. Do you think that could have been a result of the available prey base? One was easier to, to kill than the other? I think it's more just modifications are made in the gene pool, and this population of stronger skulls is able to outcompete because maybe they're able to kill things that the other animal you know, we, we have some ancillary evidence that these two species actually met each other. Uh, we're still working on that for some further research. But when the two populations came together, it was Allosaurus fragilis that was able to win the battle between the two of them. Hmm. Now, um, the, the news release that I saw about this touted it as a, as a new species of Allosaurus and yet further down, it mentioned Big Al, um, a specimen that uh, was found in Wyoming in 1991 and is up in the Museum of the Rockies in Bozeman, Montana. And it originally, I believe, was thought to be Allosaurus fragilis. When was it determined uh, to be the, uh, the older of the two? So over time, people have been looking at these different species of Allosaurus and really 
uh, Dr. Dan Churi and myself have been really looking at the question of what is Allosaurus and what are the differences between the different species. So early on during my dissertation career as a PhD student, um, I recognized that the dinosaur that has the nickname Big Al is basically the same thing as this thing that was found the year before in Dinosaur National Monument. So since the early 2000s, Dan and I have been working together to look at every specimen that's out there to determine which of the two species it, it belongs to. Paleontologists have a bad habit of giving dinosaurs nicknames so we can talk about them before they actually are published. Mm -hmm. A lot of the famous dinosaurs have nicknames. You think about Sue, the T-Rex at the Field Museum in Chicago. Well, this animal that was dug up in 1990 that we've made the type species of Allosaurus chimadzani, it has the nickname AJ, which stands for Allosaurus chimadzani, but it was a way we could talk about it without publishing the name. Big Al was found the next year, and it was a big specimen of Allosaurus, although not the biggest, and it got the name of Big Al. Then a few years later, another specimen was found just beside Big Al, which is appropriately named Big Al 2, and that's at a museum in Switzerland. So those three specimens, AJ, Big Al, and Big Al 2, formed the basis of the new species. Each one of them is represented by a relatively complete skeleton and skull, and they all um, have the features of this new species that separated from Allosaurus fragilis. One of the things that we went through in looking at this is to go and look at specimens we had to go back to that famous Cleveland Lloyd dinosaur quarry in central Utah to actually understand what Allosaurus fragilis was like. Unfortunately, the Natural History Museum of Utah um, at the University of Utah has the world's largest collection of Allosaurus bones, most of them coming from that Cleveland Lloyd dinosaur quarry. Mm -hmm. And so by comparing those specimens, which we all know are Allosaurus fragilis, to these new skeletons and then some other specimens that have come from other quarries around, around the Intermountain West, we were able to determine what is the variation within each of the two species, what differences really matter. If you think about deer in the wild today, you know, most hunters will tell you that a, a rack of antlers is not the same on each side. There are variations on different sides of the animal often variations in number of points. So animals can have differences even on the same skeleton from one side to the other, which is true of all of these dinosaurs. So we have to point out what are the differences that can happen in an animal? What are the differences that can happen in a population? And how do those differences relate between the two different species? Now, of course, you know, Utah is renowned for its fossilized dinosaur fields, uh, whether it's a dinosaur national monument or you go down to the Grand Staircase, Escalante. Um, but certainly um, having a unit of the Park Service that not only is a front runner of displaying paleontology, but also uh, an active site um, for ongoing paleontological resource is incredible to have in, in the state of Utah. Absolutely. Uh, we're very lucky in Utah. We have dinosaurs from the dawn of the dinosaurs all the way to the very bitter end. Um, one of the best records of the time of the dinosaurs in the United States, if not the world. 
um, just from Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, um, myself and my colleagues, we're hoping to name four new dinosaurs within this calendar year from those rocks. Yeah. So the hits just keep coming. Um, it's fortunate that the University of Utah has partnerships with both you know, the U.S. government's Bureau of Land Management and also with the National Park Service. Without these cooperative agreements between these institutions, science would really take a back seat. Um, so we're really appreciative to the, to the land managers, both with the National Park Service and the BLM, who facilitate and assist us in our work. Now, AJ, as you call it, is uh, now on display at the Natural History Museum of Utah in Salt Lake City? Uh, we're displaying a cast of the animal along with the cast of the skull. We also, um, this weekend, we'll be displaying a cast of Big Owl 1 and Big Owl 2, along with um, the largest collection of skulls of Allosaurus that's ever been displayed together. Mm-hmm. And that'll be up this weekend, um, January 25th and 26th. Just this weekend, or is it continuing on into the spring? For that particular one, just this weekend. Okay. We've been talking today with Mark Lowen, a research associate at the Natural History Museum of Utah, as well as an associate professor in the Department of Geology and Geophysics at the University of Utah, about a new allosaurus specimen discovered in Utah at Dinosaur National Monument. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today, and uh, good luck trying to solve that riddle down at Cleveland Lloyd. Again, it's been an honor. I appreciate talking to you. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles off the Florida Keys, just very well might be the most difficult park to reach in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, scuba diving, fishing, and kayaking. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War-era fort. The Yankee Freedom Three, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. General Washington and the Continental Army seemingly were back on their heels against the larger, better-outfitted British Redcoats back in 1777 following the Battle of Germantown. 
That was on October 4th of that year, and the Colonials were handed a devastating defeat. But in two weeks' time came startling news from upstate New York, where British General Gentleman Johnny Burgoyne had suffered an incredible and embarrassing defeat to a much lesser foe. On October 18, 1777, 5,000 British troops surrendered their arms and retreated. To help us understand the significance of that battle, we've asked Lisa Dittman, the Chief of Interpretation for Saratoga National Historical Park, to join us. Welcome to The Traveler, Lisa. Hi, Kurt. Uh, Thanks for um, uh, talking with me today. Yeah, I appreciate your time. Would it be fair to characterize the Battle of Saratoga as a pivotal battle for Washington and his colonials? After all, it was a shocking loss for the British, and I believed it helped convince France to commit to an allegiance with the colonials, no? Yes. um, The battles here have often been referred to as the turning point of the American Revolutionary War, not just by the park, but um, by other historians out there, um, because it is the first time in world history that the British Army, who at that time was the mightiest military might in the world, uh, surrendered to another country, which was our country, America, and we were a brand new country as well. Um, At that point, you know, France was kind of sitting on the fence as to whether they were going to support America or not. Um, But when the British surrendered, that is what tipped the the hand in our favor um, of France then supporting the American cause. Now, um, what can people see today of that battle? Well, the uh, battlefield uh, portion of the park is about 3,200 acres, and we have a nine and a half mile long tour road that you can drive through the park. There are 10 stops along the way, and um, you drive through the American fortified lines, the British fortified lines, and also the areas where the battles took place. So you're seeing that landscape. Geography did play a big part in this as there are rolling hills, uh, there are heights, uh, there's a river, and lots of um, forested areas. And uh, those can be seen as well. So that really puts the terrain in perspective for people who are traveling today to be able to understand, oh, that's why they needed scouts because there's trees, or that's why they couldn't see that troop there because there's a hill. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so they can see the the battlefield proper. Now, um, I've heard, and I don't know if it's true or not, that uh, the British troops would um, march in, in files and in, in regiments when they went into battles, and the colonials would uh, not do that at all, that they would hide behind trees and, and rocks or hills or whatever. Is that the case? Do you know? What I can say is that on the American side, we had Morgan's Riflemen, which was a small contingent of uh, men who did a lot of scouting. Um, so they would go through the trees. They might uh, then report back. They also might just engage the mm-hmm. enemy, the British, um, at that time, depending on you know how many people there were. Mm-hmm. The in the big battles where they faced off each other, it was very organized. Um, the you know the American side was uh, being led by General it's- Gates. And General Arnold. Um, and General Arnold was a, an amazing military strategist. 
and, and that was Benedict, Benedict Arnold before he uh, before he traded sides. Yes, yes, yeah. In fact, Benedict Arnold is considered one of the heroes of the battles of Saratoga. And wasn't he wounded in that battle? He was. Yes, and that um, the wound, uh, because it went into his bone and never healed correctly, uh, is what ended his uh, career as a field general. Um, mm. At that point, he was going to um, end up spending the rest of his career really behind a desk, yeah. which he really didn't want. <laughs> yeah. So what was the turning point? I mean, how did the colonials defeat Burgoyne and, and uh, a much larger force? Well, it, it, um, so there were two battles here, uh, September 19th, 1777, where you had about equal forces on both sides. And um, that was a technical win for the British because at the end of that day, it was getting dark and, it, you know, very difficult to see, um, to shoot a musket and muskets aren't very good at finding their target. You know, they're not very accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it was getting dark, the Americans walked off the field. And just like in sports, if there's a tie at the end, whoever leaves the field first forfeits. So the British won that first battle on a technicality. Um, for the next two and a half weeks, both sides are um, trying to figure out where, you know, get food. The Americans are getting reinforcements. Um, the British, however, are not getting any reinforcements because uh, the um, troops down in New York were actually sent to Philadelphia to cut off Washington. Um, that's where the um, British thought that was the better strategy. Right. Wasn't Burgoyne waiting for General Clinton, I think? Yeah. and he Yes. And he was sent to, to Philadelphia to cut right. off Washington because at that point, the command down in New York City thought that that was a bigger threat right. than this little battle up here kind of in the middle of upstate New York. <laughs> and, and at the same time, I, I believe from what I've read that um, General Washington was concerned that uh, Clinton would be sent north to, to help out Burgoyne and, and basically cut off uh, the New England um, colonies from uh, the, the, the uprising. I, do, I honestly don't know the answer to what you've read, but I... Um, so, like I said, if our historian was here, <laughs> he would be, he's just not here today. But, um, but what I can tell you going back to the battles is that on October 7th of 1777, the British did not have any reinforcements and their numbers had uh, dwindled and the American numbers had almost doubled, um, partly because the Americans were from this area. They were from the New Hampshire and Vermont area and Massachusetts and Connecticut, Pennsylvania. They knew the land. They, you know, they knew where they could hunt for food. Um, they also had a lot of uh, help up here. There were a lot of sympathizers for the Americans. So, you know, they were given um, more supplies. The, mm-hmm. the British who were up here, many of them um, were new to the area. They were not familiar with the area. And so they had a much harder time trying to get supplies. On October 7th, Burgoyne realizes that he is not getting any help uh, or any reinforcements. Um, there, his troops are basically starving, and he decides he has to make a final push. So he makes this final push in that battle of October 1777, and ultimately the British lose. 
on October 8th, they retreat north. They're, they're cut off from going south um, down towards Albany. So they are retreating north to try to get to Canada. Mm-hmm. And the Americans, eight miles north of here, in what today is called Schuylerville, but back then it was called Saratoga, hence the names, the Battles of Saratoga. Mm-hmm. Um, but they got to Saratoga, and the Americans basically besieged them. They surrounded them, and for the next uh, several days up until the 16th of um, October, there were a, there was some pretty heavy fighting up there um, with the British trying to break through the American lines to be able to retreat. They could not retreat. They could not break through the American lines. They had nowhere to go, so they were forced to surrender because of that. The retreat would not have happened if they had not lost the battle on the 7th of October. So on the 17th of October, um, there is a formal surrender, uh, which the Burgoyne um, had worded as a convention. Uh, he didn't like the word surrender, but um, everybody knew it, it was a surrender. So mm-hmm. October 17th, 1777, for the first time in world history, the British army surrenders to another country. That's amazing. That's really amazing. Um are, are, are there artifacts left over from the battle that are on display at the park? So here in our visitor center, we have uh, an orientation movie and we have uh, an exhibit. And in our exhibit, we do have artifacts from the battles that are on display. Um, so visitors can uh, see some of those. Most of what we have uh, is actually uh, in our archives and just like most parks, um, mm-hmm. the archives are are big and there's a lot of paperwork of what you can put out and how long you can keep it out because, uh, you know, modern, uh, because of temperature, humidity, uh, and light that might be damaging to the artifacts. So mm-hmm. um, we do have a number of uh, some interesting pieces, not just uh, cannonballs and musket balls, but some other artifacts as um, pieces of China, maybe that were being used at the time, uh, utensils, cooking things, uh, uh, you know, cooking um, utensils. And so, yeah, kind of interesting because it's not just about the fighting. It's about the people who were here and what did they leave behind buttons and belt buckles and, um, you know, maybe uh, again, a, a, I don't know that we have one, but in other places there might have been, uh, you know, um, metal. I'm thinking more of the Civil War now, but where people might have left um, photographs or sure. things that, yeah. you know, would survive. Um, right. Or, yeah, I mean, we don't have that here, but again, we do have uh, some interesting artifacts that people can see. Yeah. And any muskets from either side? We do not have anything on display. Uh, what we do have on display are replicas um, of of the uh, musk of a, a musket and a rifle, I believe, from the from that time. Do you get many British visitors? We do. We get people from all over the country, uh, the world. Excuse me. We get people from all over the world. Interestingly enough, when the British come in, um, we always ask everybody, you know, hi, where are you from or what brings you in? And the many of the British will say, oh, we're, you know, we're from Britain and we're here to see um, where we lost. 
<laughs> you know, so they're 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 very good humored and very good natured, but they're very interested in what occurred here. But you know, we get people from Ireland and um, Germany and Japan and South America. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Is there any particular season that you would suggest folks uh, come visit? Well, the tour road for the battlefield is only open to vehicles from um, April 1st to um, November 31st. The uh, road, there's some icy spots on it that never clear in the winter. It is a one-way single lane road, so uh, it gets hard to plow in the winter. And, and we just don't get a lot of visitation in the winter. So, you know, any time between April 1st and um, November 31st, if you're coming in a car, Mm-hmm. That's when you can see the battlefield. Now, the grounds for the battlefield are open, again, year-round from sunrise to sunset. We do have a lot of people who like to walk in the winter. Um, when we have snow, we groom a ski trail, so we get cross-country skiers, we get snowshoers. Mm-hmm. We get people who maybe want to sled down um, one of our hills here at the visitor center. It, and, um, and then we do get a lot of school groups that start coming in March and April, May and June. And so, you know, some people like to come up here in the middle of the winter because it's quiet because they've been here and they've seen the battlefield. But if you haven't ever seen the battlefield, you do want to be here between April and November so you can actually get out on the road to drive it. Um, We do have people who like to bicycle it. it. You know, they're very avid bicyclers. And if you want to bicycle, you know, the nine and a half miles one way, you're welcome to do that. Um, as long as the road's free from snow and ice, you can do that. Yeah. Is the landscape pretty much um, the same as it was uh, a couple hundred years ago? So in the, um, this was, this was farmland uh, here and um, over from the battles up until the 1930s, the woods around here continuously got thinned out to the point where in the 1930s, there were no trees here anymore. It's just basically had been clear cut. Hmm. In the 1950s, the um, Park Service went back to the um, original uh, drawings from the time there was a great map maker, Wilkinson, who had actually mapped the battles at the time they were happening. And those maps show where the farms were, where the forest was, and even if it was hardwood or softwood, if it was pine or if it was oak. So in the 1950s, the Park Service restored the landscape pretty close to what it was with where the trees were and where the open farmland was. So this is all new growth forest. Um, It doesn't have the thick underbrush that we would have had 243 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but people can, again, drive through and see like, oh, this open space is where the big battle happened. And, oh, I can see why these woods here might be a, a detriment to either side. Uh, so they can definitely see the landscape, but it's um, the, the trees, again, are, are new growth from the 1950s. Yeah, yeah. No, that sounds great. We've been talking today with Lisa Dittman, the Chief of Interpretation for Saratoga National Historical Park in New York State. Uh, Lisa, thanks so much for those insights into the park. It sounds like a a great place to uh, visit for at least a day, if not a a few days, to really appreciate the battle. Yeah, so we've been talking about the battlefield, which is the main part of our park, but we do have our old Saratoga units, which are in modern-day Schuylerville. We um, have the Saratoga Monument, 
which was a centennial monument um, built in 1877. And it, when in the summer when it's open, you can actually climb the stairs to the top, about 187 stairs, uh, great views of the surrounding area. And at the time in the 1900s, you could actually see all the way to the battlefields because there weren't very many trees. Um, There's also the Sword Surrender site, which is an outdoor monument that people can actually visit that site to see where that occurred. Um, That's a mile south of Schuylerville and overlooks the um, Hudson River. And then in Schuylerville itself is also General Philip Schuyler's 1777 colonial home that we open in the summer as well. And uh, we talk not only about the family, the Schuylers that lived there, but we also talk about the enslaved people that ran um, the estate because this is a northern plantation. And um, we also talk about the businesses and how the house itself and the people there affected the surrounding communities because of um, the mills and the businesses that that he had. And then we also have a small trail called Victory Woods, which is up by the monument, uh, which is open year round. So we we have a lot of other things that support our story that aren't battlefield related necessarily, Mm -hmm. um, but they are related to the battle, like with the surrender site and uh, the Victory Woods as well. And again, the surrender site and Victory Woods are open year-round because they're outside. The Saratoga Monument and the General Phillips Schuyler House are open seasonally in the summer. Um, and those hours and times vary depending on our staffing. So best to check the website um, to find out about that. But if you come in the summer, you could definitely be here, see the battlefield, and then head, head north uh, eight miles. It's a 10-minute drive um, up to Schuylerville and visit that part of our park as well. Yeah, no, it, it sounds fascinating and really uh, a window into the, the founding of uh, the United States. And I think uh, maybe not too many people out there really know about the role that uh, Saratoga played in, in the founding of the country. Yeah. And and the other thing, too, that, that these battle, this battle, this surrender affected colonialism in, in worldwide over the next hundred years be, between um, the British colonies, the Spanish and French colonies. So, and that was all through the Caribbean and, and affected all the way even into India over the next hundred years um, because of the surrender that happened here. It, it shifted the balance of things. So the, there was then a lot more turmoil going on worldwide. So yes, it was definitely the turning point of the American Revolution and our history here, but it also had a worldwide impact. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Lisa. There's some great insights there you provided. Yeah. Well, hopefully um, people who are planning a trip out uh, to New York City uh, might drive two and a half hours north and come visit us in upstate New York. Absolutely. Or over from Boston. Yes. Boston's not that far either. All right. Well, thanks again, Lisa. Have a great day now. Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it and that it might have encouraged you to visit both Dinosaur National Monument and Saratoga National Historical Park. They are just two of the jewels of the national park system. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks.
The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.